Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about the artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. In the universe of Mormon art, few have played as significant a role as Dr. Rita Wright who currently serves as director of the Springville Museum of Art, the de facto center of art culture for new and historic works of art in the region and in the church. Before becoming director of the museum, Dr. Wright was senior educator at BYU's Museum of Art. She was a juror for the church's recent international art competition, a show that she helped organize in the past as the chief curator of art and artifacts at the Church Museum of History and Art. And Dr. Wright is currently an adjunct lecturer at, of art history at Utah Valley University. She also serves on the church's Temple Art Committee. And most importantly, she's been my friend for many years, and I am very pleased to have Dr. Wright with us today. Welcome, Rita. Thank you, Micah. Can I call you Rita? Yes, please do. Please do. I, the Dr. Wright thing is... <laughs> Too pretentious for me. Well, I I, uh, I would not describe you as pretentious at all, but I would describe you as having all the depth that is owed with calling you doctor. And I'm thrilled. I'm I'm thrilled to have you. I think the problem today, we could probably both admit in the first place, is um, with the two of us together, it can be dangerous that we may just get caught in tangent land because we just get excited about the things Happens we talk about. Happens all the time. About. So we've got, it, we've got an outline of things that we want to cover, and I'll try and do my best to, to stay on it. Let's start off with the work you chose. Tell us which work you have chosen for us to start our conversation today. I chose a work of art by Wolf Barsh, and it happens to be a work that fortunately I own. A strange set of circumstances, and we can talk about that later, but it's one that is has a double title, and we're never quite sure, and Wolf has indicated to me two different titles, huh. but... I think the one that is on the purchase paper is Et in Arcadia Ego and also Itego Arcana Dei. How's that? Okay, okay. That is, that is, well, I'm, we'll get to the meaning of both of those titles. Before we do, can you describe it for us? It's an incredible work and very typical of Wolf Barsh's symbolic work. Yeah. It has uh, two large pillars at the front of the work. And uh, they each have fronds, palm fronds on the top, which is kind of interesting because we know he connects that to female fertility, that kind of thing. Hmm. That's part of his personal lexicon. That's part of his lexicon. And it's interesting because his lexicon reflects a lot of traditional Christian, Egyptian, Coptic symbolism. Hmm. But it also resonates very profoundly with LDS church doctrine in some fascinating ways. There's also very evident in the center of it a checkerboard, a black and white checkerboard feel receding into the distance, broken away, interestingly enough, by two cross-type pieces of the checkerboard revealing a galaxy, some kind of purple galaxy Hmm. in the blue distance. There's a large band of gold, and it's interesting. We can talk a little bit about how he may derive that particular color with the golden band that kind of separates the foreground in this liminal way from a cosmic mountain that's in the distance, kind of a coral cosmic mountain. Then you see endless blue sky 
with a beautiful crescent moon and a dashing comet across the top. That wolf, as indicated at different times, may represent the prophet Joseph Smith. Hmm. So there's a very thorough description, an accurate description. Even if you have the most, descri- the most accurate description of the, world, uh, of the work given to you, it, it, is, it would be confusing potentially. And for somebody seeing it, it would maybe be equally confusing if you didn't have maybe a way in or a way of describing that, right? We'll put it up on our website, zionartsociety.org. People will be able to see it. But you know, I've known Vol for a long time. He's been, um, he's been a figure in, in the community for a very long time, not just ours, but nationally he, and internationally, internationally he's known. Yes. He, um, maybe we should say a little bit about his background. He um, was born in Germany. And he, uh, he converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 1960s, subsequently moved to the United States, went to BYU, received his bachelor's in fine arts, his master's in fine arts, and then he became a member of the faculty in 1974, I believe. And he's been teaching in the studio program. For those who don't know, the, the art um, education program at BYU is divided into kind of two realms for many artists. It's one is the illustration side and one is the art studio side. One is, is uh, and, and, and they're, um, they have a little different focus, maybe we can go into, but Wolf has been a figure piece in the studio side for a long time. But then he goes on and he has, he has an international career. He gets the American Rome Scholarship, which is the pre de Rome, and he studies in Rome. He, he, I, I guess one of the questions I have when we look at this work, when we talk about him as an individual, is where does, where does he fit in the universe of art as a, in general, and then specifically within our, within LDS visual culture? I, I think, and I've always felt with his work, that there's a little bit of a duality Mm. that there is this highly intellectual aspect of it. And to just look at the, the th- items that I indicated in yeah. the image itself could become just that denotative part of, oh, you know, he uses columns and we reflect back to the Temple of Solomon or this checkerboard and looking at the dark and light, those kinds of contrasts. Yeah. But at the same time, his work is very much about using those elements to create a feeling. And that's what we sometimes want to miss. There are either those, and it it may reflect the academic world, those who want to look at this as merely an intellectual exercise, and those who really see it, I think, from the way he intends it, as being this heartfelt representation of some of his thoughts and feelings, Mm. but also inviting the viewer to not get stuck into that, but to evolve into this place where you can feel something with this work, which is, yeah. is an interesting contrast. Uh, yeah, and I and I, um, I think, even as I'm looking at it right now and we're talking, I, I, I'm trying to think, well, am I over-intellectualizing it? Because there are these these elements that you can break it down. I didn't know about the fronds that were on top of the, 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 the pillars as being some kind of uh, reference to, to, to femininity. But it, if you look at it and you back up and you see these, elements of the galaxy and the moon and the pillars, it it looks like a face. It looks like we're looking at um, maybe something by Paul Klee, which I know was something he, he had grown up. Influenced, yep. In the very beginning. I think he studied with students who were, were, were master students of 
Paul Klee and some other German and, masters. Uh, yep. And and that is that is a really unique strain of genealogy as an artist to have within our culture. How many artists can tie their lineage to the Klees of the world? Yep. And you can see it, I think. And he does. And it comes out, to look at the piece, there is a really great symmetry. Yeah. This idea of the mathematical proportions with which he creates these works. He's looking at traditional symbols. And the whole thing has a sense of order. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that's a little bit jarring. It's not just something you sit and gaze at. Like our current salon winning piece is one of those beautiful Victorian-style classical yeah. pieces that you can sit, ruminate, it calls to mind some of those things. This does cause us to ponder a bit or to ask why. I think mm. that's the most fun part of Wolf's work is that we want to just say, why? So why for, did he include this? For you personally, because you chose him for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, uh, there are a lot of, you have so much experience in so many kinds of art and we'll get to what you studied on uh, for your master's and your PhD which is quite different from this but I, I'm really interested is why why does he uh, appeal to you personally uh, this is my journey with, with Wolf Barsh and I think that will explain a little bit of it of course he was working and at BYU when I was an undergraduate so he was in some of the faculty shows and uh-huh. I was remotely aware of it at that point I was doing a theater degree mm-hmm. and so the artists in the Herald in the HVAC were those outliers and I would hmm. wander through the galleries and I was aware of his work but when you, when you say there were outliers was this like the Salon du Refusé the that were the was that the HVAC environment it's when you get focused in an area of the performing or visual arts that becomes the dominant arc that okay. was that was the time period where we didn't have a lot of performance art we weren't seeing huh. video art so much it was just very new so I was in theater and so film. So it wasn't that there was anything wrong with it. It's no. just that this was, there, there was a place on BYU campus where more experimental, less mainstream things right. could be seen. Okay. And at that time, I took a course from Milo Bothman, just as part of my general ed. Nobody told me what the course numbers meant, hmm. that you weren't supposed to take the 400 level courses if you were, you know, <laughs> uh, a beginning student. But I signed up for a course on modern art by Milo Boffman, who later was with Thayer Coggan, one of our great industrial designers, but a great theoretician. Hmm. And he, at that time, was feeding us as students information about modernist art and legitimately what we can call modernist art in the terms of Clement Greenberg. And he was talking about LDS art as he saw it at the time. So he's referring to Wolf Barsh and and some of those um, Mormon arts and belief artists as the new defining art for LDS culture. And it was the purity of modernist art, the purity of idea, the intellectual aspect of it. So I I had that kind of resonating with me but then went and, and got married, had children, moved to Southern California, and spent a lot of time on the beach. On the beach, <laughs> as the children were playing with the yeah. lifeguards in, you know, in tow, watching them, I decided I was going to read all of the works of Hugh Nibley. I huh. was wanting, I was just really interested in Hugh Nibley. So at the beach, I was reading Hugh Nibley's works. And I read an essay by Hugh Nibley, who at that point was 
the purveyor of cultural symbol, that deeper intellectual oh, sure. approach. Temple in the Cosmos. Temple These the are cosmos. books that I that, that and I started all grown up with. Kind of um, doing a lot of that. I'd been asked by the institute there to come and talk about Hunibaly. But the fact that he had specifically talked about Wolf Barsh's work. Hunibaly did? I, yes. In, you're, it, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. It Micah, kinda, this is why I brought Temple and Cosmos with me because I just want to read you that line yeah. quickly because it does Yeah, please direct. do. In, uh, in From the Earth Upon Which Thou Standest, Hunibaly said... In Wolf Barsh's paintings, there's a sense of deep concern, an ominous and brooding feeling of admonition and warning. This I find disquieting until I remember that that is exactly the effect the reading of the scriptures has on me. And I think this is the telling part. Quote again, the pictures do not tell a story. There is nothing trivial, contrived, clever, or cute about them. They seem more like a solemn summing up with something of both suspense and finality about them. In other words, he talks about it as this high seriousness. And, of course, at that point, he was the scholar I was absorbed in. So to have that kind of validation and critique, when you talk about critique, that, for me, was an art critique. So so let me ask a question about about this then, because I think for the uninitiated in art, even some of the initiated who are more towards the figurative and classical side that is so mainstream when I'm talking about figurative the work that we're doing in the church. It's, it's hard for them to feel like, they, like, like his work is approachable. And at the same time, and maybe I'm wrong about that, at the same time, Hugh Nibley, who admired him, I would have never made that connection. Right. I love that connection between the two of them, saw him felt like there was there was uh, something simpatico between them in the way that they that that they were both working towards and Hugh Nibley's works were disseminated and, and popularly quoted and used um in a way that maybe Barsh's weren't and and the question i have is like you started off by saying that um uh here you have um here you have the second phase of the art and belief mo- movement which I think Wolf is often connected to. The first phase being Trevor Southey and Gary Ernest Smith and, and, and Dennis Smith and some of these figures. He comes in and you talked about purity and intellectualism. And I, I wonder if Hugh Nibley's works caught on from that same era. I think they're still quoted in use today. Wolf has been teaching for more than 40 years. He's still going strong as a teacher and as a painter. He's still making incredible works. Does he have a following of people that are painting like him? Has his version of art and that 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 uh, w- and what Nubly's talking about caught on in the same way that Wolf has done it, or is it shown up in different ways? Or I, I guess that's a lot. That's a lot to process. I think, and as we'll talk about in a minute, it was uh, it was about this time that President Kimball wrote that vision of the art. So I saw the two of these as very compatible because yeah. Wolf's work, and as Nibley commented, is not about the trivial. It is about greatness. It's about connecting in a very yeah. universal way with those kinds of symbols, a lot of temple and archetypal yeah. symbols. And I think that is the residual effect that we see, is that the artists after that period and getting mm-hmm. into postmodernism where everything, there's there's 
nothing that is necessarily a direct relationship. But to go back to Wolf Barsh, for him, there was. He was kind of the post-postmodern postmodernist. Hmm. And that because of the spiritual importance, because he felt like these mathematical proportions, very classical in that aspect, felt like mathematical proportion, those divine, the Fibonacci sequence, uh, looking at whether you've got the columns of the Temple of Solomon or the Cosmic Mount, a lot of what Nibley was writing about in his temple typologies. And so I was interested, actually went back to school to do something on temple typologies. I was in San Diego. I had a great classics professor who was encouraging me and allowed me to use Hugh Nibley's work. He didn't know a lot about him, but he was like, oh, this is fascinating. And of hmm. course, Mircea Eliade. Because for them, the, the Nibley would have been a little on the edge. Nibley was writing about LDS culture and his history to an LDS audience, right. and he wasn't known widely. But you brought that with you to San Diego? Yeah. What was in San Diego? Well, I was living in San Diego, remember, okay. on the beach. Yeah. And so I had been studying Hugh Nibley, decided to go back to school, knew that um, I needed to somehow help with our, our finances, and I thought, I'm going to go back to school and hmm. actually do a gre- degree in ancient temples. And so I was studying ancient Rome and Greek uh, religious rituals. Hmm. And um, so... It was just so fun because Wolf Barsh's work kind of had that credibility factor from Nibley, who at the time I was really studying. Also, the classicists at BYU or at um, San Diego State were kind of interested in what I was hoping to do with this. So let me, before we talk, because I want to talk about you and your your education and, and, and what your, your studies were. Um, before we do that, I, ju- I just want to see if this is a fair conclusion about Wolf Barsh then, mm-hmm. is that... He may not have popularized his style within LDS circles, but in his leadership role in applying classicism in in his in in a, in a new way in a, in a new way that um, maybe adopted some of modernist uh, a modernist approach that was a little abstracted, but using non-abstracted shapes and forms like columns and things, like abstracting those things, he impressed on a new generation. A kind of intellectual heft and discipline in the department at BYU that didn't show up stylistically, but it was an ethic. It was an ethic of your art needs to have this kind of rigor and depth. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's really fair. And and where it went, I don't see a lot of direct lines. And of course, his daughter-in-law, um, Jenna, Jenna von, von Benedict, Benedict is, um, which by the way is his full name, the von Benedict, but that I think we definitely see this ability to capture, and it may be almost a phenomenological sense that you feel something more that because of what the Greeks felt, the power of mathematical proportion, proportion, the power of visual image to convey those proportions in Greek sculpture. We don't, of course, have, have much of the imagery. But I think in an intellectual way, Wolf Barsh has tapped into those, is conveying some of those larger hmm. universals. Maybe there's even a little bit of of Plato here because right. he is using some ideal forms. He is always the pilgrim looking forward. And those comparisons are made often about Barsh, that he saw himself as a stranger in a strange land. Mm-hmm. And whether it's in art criticism or in the LDS culture, BYU, or just away from his homeland, 
that there is this sense of longing, this sense of wanting to engage in journey, a sense of wanting to arrive back home. So thus, in my particular Im image, and a lot of them, there are these distant mountains, this cosmic mm -hmm. mountain, these eternal cosmic frameworks for yeah. the rest of the paintings. Yeah, it seems like a lot of idealized spaces, and it does feel, on some level, cold is the other side of idealized, but it doesn't, these paintings don't necessarily feel cold. Even though he uses a lot of warm blue, his colors are always jewel-like and strong. I, I, I'm always surprised that when I, when I see them in person, how important color is in his work and how he uses it compositionally. And even though I don't often fully understand it, um, and I think this is a work that we could spend an hour, hours talking about. I hope that what we've done in talking about just this one piece. All of is his. I had one at the church yeah. that people wanted to talk about because they approached first with, yeah. I don't get this. Uh, why is this here? Yeah. I don't understand this. This is not the normal kind of Mormon art. But the fact that they want to ask questions and engage, and the fact that he doesn't want us to just give them answers. No, the, this is the this is one of several versions. Well, several other paintings that have the same title, and Ed Arcadia and um, and Ego is a line from Virgil, and Poussin, who's one of my favorite painters, seventeenth-century artist used this for two pieces, and one of his most famous with a group of shepherds standing by a. Um, tomb that it has that etched on it and the implication has been taken up by many art historians most recently Erwin Panofsky who I really admire who said that um, well Pliny took it as it, it anciently took that phrase and said it was a reference to the first artist and Arcadia always meant an idealized world mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't, there's so many interpretations Their of this deep phrase. At the very least, it means that Barsh is connected to classism and thinking of themes that are universal, not just to Mormonism, but applying them to Mormonism and his belief. But they could be understood by anyone who is deeply thoughtful and in the larger tradition of art. Now, Micah, I have to just come yeah. in here because... I think that's where I had always generally been going. There is a sense of inquiry. You feel like you've entered the yeah. labyrinth. You want to get to the center. But it was interesting that et in Arcadia Ego and also the rest of this, Itego Arcana Dei, mm -hmm. that those were terms, if you search them right now on the internet, all of the Da Vinci Code comes up. <laughs> It is all about this conspiracy that, yeah. again, the mystery of is at, uh, in Arcadia Ego, am I, is it death, those different interpretations. Right. But the rest of the title of this means I conceal the divine or sacred mysteries of God. Arcana, hidden, day, day Arcana, God. the hidden. And so there and the is this of sense God. of okay. invitation into deeper understanding and we could look at it as gamesmanship. I do that. My grandkids look at this, and we kind yeah. of say, you know, what do you think this means? You've seen the chessboard. What, that kind of thing. So I always see his work, and a lot of it was subliminal reception on my part, as a challenge to engage, as yeah. a challenge to seek understanding, hmm. but not be told. In fact, I had him in his office at the time I acquired this, and I started saying some of these things to him, and he said, that's exactly, he said, I'm not going to tell you. 
what this means, but that you have sought and make some of those connections was a really fun way for us to engage in conversation. So there was a deliberate effort on his part to not reveal everything. He didn't want to walk you through. It reminds me, and I, I wouldn't want to compare him to Andy Warhol, but there's a great story where Andy Warhol was asked by a reporter to say, tell me what your work means. And he said, well, if, if I wanted to be a writer or a reporter, I wouldn't have painted exactly. it. Exactly. In other words, I painted it, so that is my statement. And I'm going to let you have your experience with it and think through it. Now, I, I feel that I, even more now that I know that story and his personal reaction. You went on to get your master's and your PhD in, in the history of art. This is very different than what you in studied. Victorian. Yeah. It, so, so tell us what your, what your studies Victorian. were. Yeah. So I, I went from this and I came back to BYU intending to do a master's degree in humanities and complet on garden typology. So garden there was still typology. this theme of the temple, of those sacred typologies. When you say and garden, do you mean what do you mean by garden? Eden, okay, Eden typology. Eden, okay. Yeah, the the Garden of Eden and how Eden is a prototype temple with all of the same components that we have at the temple. You've got the gatekeeper and the cherubim, and you have to be able to engage. You've got the tree. Hmm. And of course Wolf uses different trees. The cypress tree is the male component. The female is the tree, the palm frond. Hmm. But we've also got here the the Boaz and Joaquin here of the temple. So I intended to do a gardens, a, a garden and Eden hmm. kind of thing. Did it go that, that way? And it didn't. I ended up in London last minute assisting uh, Ray Hillam, who was the director of the Kennedy Center at the time, mm -hmm. in a study abroad. I was looking for garden things in the afternoon, doing my research at the Royal Academy. And lo and behold, The Garden of the Hesperides by Frederick Leighton came up. And this is back when it's not easy to do Google, Google searches. And in fact, you know, it was very early on in that. But I found the Garden of the Hesperides, wanted to look at that, but hmm. I was mesmerized by Leighton's processional paintings, which again had this very mathematical, classical construct to them. Yeah, they're often called, and his cohorts of the time in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, Frederick Leighton, Lord Frederick Leighton, called Leighton Holland Park, for those who, who know that area of London, he uh, in Knightsbridge. He, they were known as the Olympian painters, and that included Alma Tadema, John William Godward, his part of his part Valerie Princep, um, the uh, and and even even though it wasn't stylistically, there was also um, uh, Whistler was 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 in that group, and he became Leighton, the president of the Royal Academy. He was one of the most powerful, not only influencing people stylistically but administratively. He was a powerful figure. And I've actually referred recently Joseph Brickey, who is one of our very fine figurative LDS artists. Mm -hmm. I've encouraged Joe and his associate, Nikki Covington, to get Leighton's lectures. Mm -hmm. Because I said, if you want to get inside of that Olympian classical mentality. And yet, Leighton was very much a man of the Victorian world, very cultured. He spoke Greek. He was sometimes called commonly the Greek. He studied in Rome, where he was under the influence of some of the Nazarene painters. But it was just so fun to me to see this strain continuing, and that there were a group hmm. of Victorian artists who were so 
intellectually engaged. We are often right. dismissive of the Victorians and talk about it being kind of saccharine and overly yeah. emotional. And yet what I found were some of the both writers and artists of the greatest intellect easily comparable to what we were reading in the Renaissance, the great oration of man by Pico della Mirandola. These artists were looking at the way the universe came together in very powerful ways in the classical world. Was this all of a, of a piece in a way for you? In, in other words, if you were to have your own um, I, imaginary or ideal dinner party, do you feel like you could have invited Barsh, Leighton, <laughs> some of these other figures and found that there was some, they were all of a piece in Absolutely. your mind. And what what uh, was it that, that, that they shared that you found as a commonality? I think that there's something beyond just the image, that there is much more, both from their autobiographical and their intellectual side, uh -huh. but there's also a connecting to something larger. Leighton was fairly secular in some of his things. In fact, he went to Rome and was overwhelmed by Rome. His mother was writing him, don't, don't fall for that Catholic stuff. And he was just like the power of these visual images. Right. And so studying with the Nazarenes who were actually um, identified themselves as almost a monastic order, looking back at the ancient art and especially of the early, uh, of the late medieval, early Renaissance. And so he was very much into that sacramental feeling level that was my dissertation, was on Victorian ritualism. Mm -hmm. The way that in the fine arts, the visual and performing arts, they started recreating ritual. Well, this, this makes me wonder, um, for yourself and for the art that you love, it seems like, um, and this may be a long walk for me to get there, I don't think it will be, but if you've got somebody like Leighton and someone like Wolf Barsh, they both go to Rome. They both study classicism at a time where it's it's not necessarily the predominant strain of taste. I guess you could say maybe more in Victorian England it would have been acceptable. But he does have people saying, no, we're Protestant. Don't go and be Catholic no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. You study Victorian ritualism. In LDS culture, there is this strange relationship with wanting to understand the past, be connected to the past, but also not wanting to be affected by other alien strains and interpretations of it. And when I look at Wolf Barsh's work and, and other people's, and, and even modernism, anything that is not like clearly a particular kind of art in Mormonism, people get somewhat uncomfortable because they, they're used to their version. They're used to their things. Exactly. And this is what I found is that in the late 19th century, of course, they're in the middle of empire building. Yeah. The Victorians are looking to the past in Egyptian culture. Of course, eventually the Rosetta Stone ends up in yeah. England. They're very interested in what's happening in Assyrian Egyptian culture. But there's also this real renewal through people like um, John Ruskin and Cardinal Newman, John Henry Newman, who wrote, by the way, our lead kindly light hmm. as he was struggling with having been to Rome, 
having been overwhelmed again by Catholic liturgical practice. After he'd been isolated on this island saying, this is yeah. all there is, what yeah. we have he'd here been, on, in he England. He was at Oxford. He later was at Oxford. At Which Don. had been around for centuries. And so is there anything you need in Rome if you've been to yeah. Oxford? Kind and of he idea? eventually converts to Catholicism. Interesting. But it's interesting that his writings, to read Newman's writings and Orson Pratt or Joseph Smith's, some of Joseph Smith's things, this reverence for sacramental interaction. It is not just about the word, as Martin Luther indicated it. It is about connecting in space. The Gothic cathedral is an incredibly mathematically based architecture, and that they wanted people to be able to connect again that mathematical harmony and proportion, both in sound for the the, the choirs, and also I think this is what we're seeing here with Wolf Barsh, that there's a connection to something more than just the intellectual. I think that was happening, and in fact, the woman I did my dissertation on was a classicist, but wrote about ancient ritual, and Hugh Nibley, again, she was prominent in some of his writings. That's where I came to know her. And Jane Ellen Harrison was also the woman that Virginia Woolf mentions at the mm. very first page of a room of her own, um, Miss H. So the modernist connection there between ancient ritual, Isadora Duncan, um, Virginia Woolf, they are looking at what Jane Ellen Harrison studied about past ritual as they are mm. recreating. You know, Isadora Duncan wanted to create authentic Greek dance. Yeah. And, Victor- and there's a way you could say Wolf is using these these classical There's elements, very much that continuity, but, but remixing them in a way that maybe makes the familiar unfamiliar yeah. again. And challenges us. It becomes, yeah. for me, what I think I have learned over the years of studying this and why I now have the Wolf Barsh painting. It's a very emotional thing for me because it's hanging in the entrance of my home. I want there to be, and I'm sorry. And, Don't be um, sorry at all. But I want there to be this sense of looking forward, of the personal journey. Huh. And color-wise, it doesn't go with my Tuscan-based <laughs> home. But it is a reminder to me yeah. that there is something out there that to there identify That there is an with. Arcadia. That there is, is an, an idealized place, a Garden of Eden. And what we saw, I think, was so interesting in Dan Brown. Many authors had actually written about the same subjects Dan Brown wrote about. For hmm. uh, instance, Catherine Neville's The Eight, which came out in the 80s, she talks about the chessboard and the divine proportions of a chessboard, Charlemagne's chessboard. Of yeah. course, it's a novel. She talks about the divine proportions. And so there is this preliminary, I think, set up to what Dan ba- Brown popularized, this questioning into signs and symbols of the right. past. And we have it today, some of our scholars, Alonzo Gaskell. When Dan Brown did his last big novel, which was called, oh, anyway. Inferno? No, it was um, the last last symbol, the last symbol. And Alonzo Gaskell at the same time had written The Lost Language of Symbolism. Amazon had those two searches going back and forth because it was about this sense of connecting through these symbols classicism will keep yeah. returning and keep having its language yeah. re- and and be renewed by each generation that's something that joseph Ricci says quite eloquently and I, I won't try and repeat it but it's essentially that classicism isn't a style it's a something you can draw on for strength regularly mm-hmm. and and you can make your own style in it just like wolf has 
And there's a mystery to it. There is a mystery to it. And I think, and that is when, and I'll just catch up a little bit about the acquisition of this and why Wolf Barsh. I had, I got to the Springville Museum of Art as his exhibition, Ex Corde Luke's came, uh, was already there. And he was in the office and he came in and he said, well, I was hoping the museum would buy this piece. And I said, wow, I'm just transitioning in. I don't know what we've got. And he came in my office again. And I said, can I just hang it in my office while I find out? He said, yes. So I had it in my office above my gorgeous fireplace in this Spanish colonial revival building. You have one of the best offices in the world. In the whole world. You do. Absolutely. Anyone... But and I don't want to encourage any of the listeners to just show up and walk into it. They, you should knock, but but you are very welcoming down I, there, and you no, show you, it to people. You, I want them to. I yeah. have very much an open door and an open fire. And you have art, new it's art the there heart. all the time. It is not. I don't think coincidental that Wolf Barsh came in and said, "Well, if I could make it possible for you to buy this personally, would you?" Because I just said, "Oh yeah, in my dreams, I'd always love a Wolf Barsh." I do have a, a portfolio print of Chagall. That's the mm. only original work at that time yeah. I had. And again, interesting. there are interesting similarities. It is the image Chagall has of a Chagall angel looking through the lens of God to the Temple Mount. So mm. you're seeing this theme interesting. here. Interesting. So when the Minute Wolf said Chagall that, I thought, yeah. yeah. And um, I just. I said, I have to make this happen. It's a dream. It is not coincidental. And so when you just said there, there's also that kind of Jewish, there's the Catholic, I just had my DNA done. And not coincidentally, I'm three quarters French. There's the Catholic Mormon art appreciator. Yeah. And I'm a quarter Middle Eastern. Oh, really? And so it was interesting. I was talking to uh, an, a DNA specialist, and she said, those two strains are very genetically entwined. So when Art Bassett, who is my advisor at BYU, said, Rita, you are an, an art Catholic, which was the claim of some of those Victorians, yeah. there are these strains of mysticism and sacramentalism and Catholicism and Judaism. And I know you. Well, this gone- is something that I know that's hard to reconcile for a lot of people, not just um, aesthetically, but doctrinally. I joke with people that I am. I'm aesthetically Catholic, but doctrinally Mormon. And I don't know if that's entirely true, but the, the joke and, 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 and what I think I'm hearing from you too is that there are parts of us who, um, who are, it's not that we're looking beyond the mark because we're not satisfied necessarily. It's that there are depths that other depths help us explore. Mm-hmm. And 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 going to Rome, either actually or metaphorically on a grand tour of some kind, exposes us to things that help us question what we've believed, and and if our beliefs are strong enough, and if they're on a on a good foundation, and if they're deep enough, they get strengthened by their exposure to other things, or. You know, maybe they don't. And I and I think that that's a journey that everyone has to take. And it seems like something that Nibley saw in Barsh. That's what Nibley was saying. This is a challenge to look at. It's challenging some of these ideas, but if I'm also, interpreting that correctly. It's also about what matters. An interesting book called Atheism or Religion for Atheists. Yeah. And um, I, I know the author's name. It just skipped my mind. But in there he said the thing he's most fascinated about that he wishes – Atheist, one of the things that they could bring into their lives because mm-hmm. of the personal power 
is religious art. And then he writes the line, because religious art is about what matters. Interesting. And in this age of meaning, we've got a, a lot of the issues in the world dealt with. In you know, We're working on problems to solve hunger. We're looking inward to the psychology and neuroscience of human beings. But the thing that we are lacking right now, according to Daniel Pink, New York Times writer, is that we are in an age of meaning want. We've Hmm. gone through postmodernism where everything is relative and you do that, but we are now in an age where people want meaning. They want to know there is something more. We're seeing this merging. I... In, in my chapel the other day, someone bore testimony of the power of yoga in their lives. Hmm. We would not have heard that 25 no. years ago. It no, would have been have. marginalized. You know, this anti-Catholic strain, the fact that I'm sitting here saying, I absolutely adore walking into a Gothic cathedral. Yeah. And the power of that. A lot of, of people would, would, would agree with you. Of, yeah, and a lot of 19th century religious art. But there is a power that we connect to, I think, and and we're still studying through neurology, through the whole physiologically chemical makeup, Mm -hmm. there is a power when you connect to something that has meaning. And it sounds trite, and in a lot of art history discussions, it's, I think that's why we, doing critique, and one of the things you say, that the church, we have not had a lot of people critiquing this, you can't go here in most art history classes. Not no. anywhere no, you in Utah. No, you couldn't go into belief, which I is part of the this. reason for the space. I can do this in London. I went in and I talked about, you know, yeah. the processional of the Daphnophoria, which Leighton painted. I talk about even Rossetti and the pre-Raphaelites yeah. getting into that sacramental right. mode, but because it is about what matters. So I want to, I want to get back to something you said, and I want to end on this. We're, 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 uh, oh, I could just talk to you forever, Rita. I love listening to you. You're such a, you're, you're so thoughtful. Um, and we'll have to have you revisit to come back and, and talk with us. But I want to, you talked about Wolf coming in and having a conversation directly with you as the incoming director of the museum. Right now, the Springville, uh, the Spring Salon is on, the 93rd Spring Salon. And it is one of the biggest events that happens in our region, within our culture, for art, for contemporary art. It is one of the most important. It's one of the most important in the United States for contemporary art, in my opinion. And I don't, I don't think that's an exaggeration. You've been in a lot of museums. You've been through a lot of institutions in your career. You've got a lot of experience. Is it fair to say that the relationship that Springville has, and you specifically as the director of the Springville Museum of Art, have with contemporary artists is different than other institutions? I find it a lot different from my experience because it is about engaging with today's artists. They come into my office. They walk into the museum. They trust us with their works and their hearts. And I, you know, I've done Rembrandt. I've done Karl Block exhibitions. I love studying excuse me, but dead artists, although (laughs) I believe they are still living. But there is something about the energy and the personal encounter and power that I get with artists walking through my door at Springville. I, I cheer them. I applaud them. They do put their hearts on their sleeves because they're juried out and I feel somewhat responsible for affecting their, their lives with what our jurors do. And you've been a juror. But there is such a different energy and contemporary sensibility 
with the artists working in Utah today. They are phenomenal. Yeah. Talking with Brian Kershiznik at the opening the other night. Also a professor at BYU. Also a professor, and again, one of our very and, interesting... And a very art, successful commercial artist. Artists are known around the world. Yeah. I had a London dealer come and say, what is going on in Springville, Utah, that yeah. we see your artists working internationally? There is something special about it in the sense that you, this instance that you've shared of Wolf coming in and talking to you personally, how many museums does an artist feel like they can walk in to Tate Britain and just talk with the director. I don't know how common that is of a relationship. There's actually usually a firewall that's created to create a sense of, 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 a, of, of distance and, and, and uh, being above whatever's happening currently in, in the market or, or in, in the atmosphere that you want to be, you want to be somewhat, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Above reproach and those kinds of things. And the double-edged sword is that you do have to deal with the personal, those who get juried out and those who, who uh, but you get also, juried in. Yeah, but you I also, you also get, um, you have a finger on the pulse down there. And I guess this is one of the questions I want to ask is maybe you can't tell because it's not, it, it hasn't, ha it hasn't had enough distance yet. Every year it seems to be, there's a trend that you can see or trends is there anything you saw in this year's salon, which opened this week, that sticks out to you as a trend? There is, and we've talked about it. It is a trend that I see artists, again, trying to connect with meaning. They may not do it stylistically the same. They may not be using the same medium, but they are all trying to convey something that they feel is important to the viewer, to the world. They want, and, and we see I've got landscapes, you know, some landscapes that are, interestingly enough, very traditional landscapes, but incorporating some of these numerical mathematical proportions. Yeah. We see the lovely piece by Howard Lyon that is conveying an elegance, a return to the idea that an artist today can start to master some of those classical skills that they can start to involve and envelop their work with concept and meaning. It seemed like there was a, it was a very strong figurative show. Um, and it also seemed to me that there was an inclusion of modernism, either in the way that the paint was applied, in the palettes that were chosen, or in the perspective that was, that was done, where figurative art was experimenting more with modernist approaches. I was, I, was, I was surprised by that. Mm -hmm. And, and yet yeah, also traditional. I, that's the thing that's so wonderful that I'm not going to pin down a particular thing with our Utah artists because they are working out. They are working out their own style, their own ideas, but they come together. They work together. I love this in Utah. There's not such a competitive edge, but the artists no. spend time. They plan Evenings where they just hang out and talk. Mm -hmm. They get together. They support the younger artists. Brian, we know Brian, J. Kirk Richards. They take these younger artists under their wing. They want them to succeed. They want them to develop skill, but they also want them to think. Yeah. They want them to have something to say. And right. uh, that's very powerful. We had almost, well, we had almost 900 entries into this show and it's heart-wrenching to have to cut and and to watch the jurors take out some of the artists right. some of the works that you really love but that's what keeps it vital that's yeah. what keeps them working keeps them energized and uh, it is to me and we go back now and in conclusion 
that David O. McKay dedicated the B or the Springville Museum of Art to be a sanctuary of beauty and a temple of contemplation. He was not just using LDS words. He was a master educator, and that phrase temple, to come back to it, was used in 19th century educational language. Temples of learning, temples of the muses. The museum is a temple of the muse, and I see our artists touched by that all the time. The spirit, the light, the power. So when David O. McKay dedicated the Springville Museum of Art, which is a unique thing to have a museum dedicated. It was called a Temple of Beauty and a... A Sanctuary, sanctuary of Beauty and a Temple of Contemplation. A Sanctuary of Beauty and, and a Temple what of you Contemplation. See. That's what you see in the salon. Beauty, well, contemplation. I want, to, I want to end by asking you a question that we're asking everyone. It's two questions. Um, first one, it, it, the, it's, it's because this is the 50th anniversary this year of the Gospel Vision of the Arts talk given by Spencer W. Kimball. Um, he said that we would have, we had the potential for a Mormon Michelangelo that would express our highest values in art as a culture. And the first question I have is, have we reached that potential through art? No. No. Um, but have we built something parallel to that potential. I I don't know that anyone in the context of their time is going to be a Michelangelo. And I think he also says our Miltons, our Shakespeare's. He does. They are not, but our ability to take those things and to turn out things of equal value and power and force, I think is, is the challenge that's out there. Are we getting closer to expressing our highest values in art? I think we are just because we're willing to talk about it and the artists are willing to respond to that challenge. They have been. I carried that talk around with me as a mom in the diaper bag that that President Kimball had given long before I came back into an academic and critical approach to this. So it was in my mind. It is the home that Wolf Barsh is seeking, is that place for the artists and their art to be accepted in this community and to be up to the standard that we're all hoping it yeah. gets to. We do see those glimmers frequently. And yet I think having that longing out there is really important. I do yeah. not want to say we have arrived because I think that is what will cut off the crea- creative yeah. dissipation of ideas. I don't think Michelangelo would have said he'd arrived at his full potential. Well, Rita, it is such a gift to have you here and and we're we're uh, we're thrilled to have you you've always been so supportive of what we do we want to be supportive of what you do we want everyone to go to the springville museum of art and see the salon that's taking place right now um we've done a bonus episode about that where eric and i went and talked about a few pieces and you can check that out on our um, on our website um i'd like to end by saying thank you so thank much you. for coming um I'd like to thank Rita Wright, director of the Springville Museum of Art, for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information on the Springville Museum of Art's current exhibitions, including the Spring Salon. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen, and thank you for listening.